Welcome to Descriptive, a podcast in which we find out about programmers' origin stories. This is episode 20. I've always been interested in really rich experiences. Hello, this is Henning, and uh, I'm here with Khalil. Hey. And today's guest is... Robin Ward, he's the co-founder of Discourse, the creator of Forum Wars, and the evilest trout of them all. Good evening. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to come on. Well, thanks for inviting me. All right. Uh, we'll just dive right in, and uh, we would like to know how you got started in programming. Cool. So, like, right from the beginning? From the very beginning. Like, when, when did you realize that you were interested in, in software development or programming and how did that all start? What led you to that? Yeah, sure. Well, um, so I'm 36 years old. So I was born in 1979. And uh, so when I was a kid, computers were much less common than they are today. Like there, there were definitely like, you know, Apple IIs and things like that. And some of my friends had Commodore 64s when I was a kid. But I was actually really lucky that my dad worked at IBM. And uh, when they announced their very first IBM PC personal computer, he bought one right away. He was super excited. And if anything, he like overextended himself in his finances. I think he said it was like $3,000 or something like that for the very first. Was that first. one of those with the monochrome green? Yes. Screen? Yeah. He splurged and eventually we had a CG. We had two monitors. You could have a monochrome and a CGA monitor attached. So we actually had both. So he spent money that we didn't have like to get this computer because he's just so excited about it and i remember when it was first sitting there like I, I i guess i was very young at this time uh i just like this giant computer with this giant you know clicky keyboard and i used to like type messages on the keyboard to him thinking that like i mean when the computer was off thinking that when he'd turn it on again that he would see them on the screen and i guess very quickly i learned that that didn't work that the computer wasn't paying attention. But he bought all these like books and stuff. I guess he was going to teach himself to program or something like that. And he never actually really got into it. But there, he, there was a book on basic. And uh, I just started flipping through it as a kid. I was curious about this because I actually really enjoyed games like King's Quest and stuff like that. I would play on this, uh, on this computer with uh, really awful graphics back in the day. And the, yeah, I just remember reading this like it, this example about like how to do an if statement. Actually, it was like a, it was a really simple program. It was about it's amazing that I remember this. I was about, I probably was about seven years old. It was about like, uh, pick a cow that's in a pen and that cow will go out to pasture. And it was like, either you type one and then it's like cow one goes out to pasture or two cow two goes out to pasture. And it was just like an input to a variable and then an if statement. And then just like, uh, I guess I forget what they called it for printing in basic. Was it just print? I think it was. And then it was like, yeah, and this cow went to the pasture. And I, I guess I just like really got into it from that point on. And I was always trying to make my own games. So from there, I just like learned more and more and more. And like, you know, so by high school, I had actually been programming a fair amount. And then, uh, yeah, so when my adult life came around, like I had already had quite a lot of experience by the time I was like, I got my first real programming job. So that's basically how I got started, just with that original IBM PC, which I was lucky enough to own. Many of my friends got PCs later, of course, but I felt like I got a head start. Right, that original lot. PC that... That must have been mid-80s or something like that? Uh, yeah, I think it was probably early 80s. Yeah. I'm not actually sure of the exact date, but I, I know by the time I was seven, I'd already had it. So it was probably like, yeah, it was probably like around the mid-80s. Yeah, and the game King's Quest, I think I remember that from coming and visiting to the States. Is that sort of a, a text-based adventure game? Where it was to... like, they actually called it a 3D 
<laughs> like okay. uh, interactive uh, adventure game. And it was like, but you still typed. And when they said 3D, it was because you could use the cursor keys to move a little guy around the screen and you could go behind trees and stuff like that. <laughs> and because you could go behind an object, like a bush or a tree or something like that, they called it 3D, even though the game was totally 2D by you know, yeah. today's standards. But it actually taught, taught me to write as well because like my English wasn't, like written wasn't very good when I was really young. Let's say I was like four or five years old, maybe six. Uh, and my mom like would always tell me like she recounted the story of me waking her up first thing in the morning. Like, mom, how do I spell stick? I have to type get stick, you know, in this game. <laughs> and uh, so that like taught me English, uh, or at least gave me a little bit of a head start versus other kids in my class on like spill on spelling and things like that because I had to play these text adventure games. I guess kids these days, like if they're inter interested in games now, they just have to like hit X or something like that. They don't have, <laughs> yeah. to, they don't have to type things just anymore. Have to shoot. So. Right. Yeah. So did uh, did that then lead to you wanting to take courses or did you basically teach yourself pretty much everything? I taught myself most things. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, there was a lot of books and like eventually when I got into BBSs and stuff, you could download like text files and they could like and they had people had written graphics programming tutorials and things like that. Uh, but this is, you know, before I had access to the Internet and stuff. I think I got that when I was like uh, when I was around 14 or 15 or something like that. We got our first dial up Internet connection and then there was like much more information available. But yeah, so I did a lot of it with books. Our high school did teach some programming courses, but by the time you know, I took those courses. I had already learned most of the things they covered just on my own. So I didn't like, they didn't really teach me much. It was just like an easy course to get an A. Um, but I did, I did go to university briefly. I took a, I took computer science here at the University of Toronto for almost two years and that I, I did learn a fair amount there. So I'm, I'm not a hundred percent self-taught. I, I have had uh, a lot of classes, I guess. Okay, when you say briefly, that means you didn't, you dropped out or? I, I did drop out. Okay. Yeah, so what actually happened was, um, I guess it was around 1999, which was like the dot-com boom. You know, things were just hitting it really big. And I got a summer job working at like, um, like after my first year of university of computer science, I got a job at a, uh, a local web firm that did websites and business was just crazy. Everyone wanted websites and they were charging ridiculous amounts for them and people were paying because people didn't know how much this kind of thing was worth. And uh, so I was working like a summer job there for like $15 an hour. So I felt rich. I felt like <laughs> rich beyond my wildest dreams. I'm like, oh, like it's none of my friends. Most of my friends at the time were, you know, working minimum wage jobs and things like that. And uh, I was like, I have $15 an hour and I was living with my parents and I just like, I was like, I can buy all the video games I want and all this stuff. It was really fun. And at the end of the summer, they were basically like, well, we don't want you to go back to school. We'd rather you work here because I guess I was doing a good job. And, uh, and I was like, no, I should really finish my school. So then they were like, well, we'll actually pay for school if you go like 50% school and, and work here. So I did that for a while. And so to finish those two years of computer science was probably closer to like two and a half or three years because I did a bunch of, uh, a, a bunch of it part-time. But then after a while, like the, it was just, I was having so much more fun at work. I think like personally, like, I really enjoyed the computer science courses I took at university, but there was a lot of courses that were just thrown in, I think, to make things what I consider artificially difficult. You know, things that you wouldn't necessarily use in most programming jobs. Like, for example, we had to take uh, a calculus course. And calculus is not, 
not not an unreasonable thing I think for a programmer to take, but we had to take the advanced calculus course, which like our university had calculus and it had calculus, which is the same course but with an exclamation mark in the <laughs> in the course description, which nice. is ridiculous. And that one was for math majors and for people like that. Um, like uh, so, if you were taking like a physics degree or a mathematics degree, you took calculus and it was all theoretical calculus. And they were like, well, obviously computer science students have to learn this, but it was just. I was like, wow, this is, I could tell. I'm like, I'm never going to use this. Now, I'm not going to say that no programmer will ever use that. Maybe if you're doing like uh, 3D rendering or physics simulations or things like that. But I think the majority of people didn't need to do that, but they insisted like, oh, you have to take this first year. And it was just an enormous amount of work. You know, maybe if you came from a math background, it wouldn't be, but it was just like there was assignments due every week. And I was just like, why are they making this so hard? Why are they, you know, really pushing you through it? And I, the only my cynical conclusion was because they just want to see who's serious about it. You know, yeah, wanna... Is that something that they called like a gate course that everybody had to get through to actually get into the the program, or is that uh, just part of the program? No, you were already in the program at that okay. point. It's just to gra to to graduate, you needed that thing. So a lot of I guess a lot of people like either like if they failed that course, they'd switch to something else, or they just drop out of the program. But yeah, I actually found like most of the computer science courses were super fun and I learned a lot of cool things. Like there was a Unix course that I found invaluable and things like that. But it was like, it was these other courses that I was just like, oh my God, like this is just like, you're making it so hard. You yeah, know, they want you to be well-rounded, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what it is. Um, maybe like, maybe my mind aligns a little more with maybe something like a college degree where it's like, you know, like. To me, the, uh, like we, if we have a shortage of programmers, if that's what people are saying all the time, or that at least it's very hard to fill jobs. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe it shouldn't be so difficult to get a computer science degree. At least when, like, I have a feeling that the majority of programmers wouldn't be using theoretical calculus. Yep. Um, but maybe, like I said, maybe maybe the answer to that is, oh well, you should just go to college or something. But anyway, what happened to me was that I I dropped out, and I've been working full time ever since. So it didn't it didn't seem to personally affect my hireability or things like that. Um, and I think after a while, people don't even care where you went to school. You know, right. no one's, no one's asked. I, I can't think of the last time in an interview or any kind of job thing. Someone's asked me where I went to school because yeah. I've been so doing it. When so you long. dropped out, did you stay with that company that's basically paid for, for your courses or? I did. I yep. was there. I was there for a while. It was, it was a fun place to work, but, uh, we were kind of like, I guess I, I don't know if this was just a poorly run uh, company from a programming perspective or if it's like many companies just hadn't figured stuff out. But like we weren't using version control and things like that. Like we had heard that you should use version control, but we weren't, you know, and it was all using cold fusion. And um, and after a while, I was just like, I, I got a little sick of the stress of just, you know, when you're doing consulting work, everything's always on a deadline and everyone's always in a hurry. And uh, so it was, it was quite stressful. So I, I ended up uh, switching to a job at like a more of, um, I guess, like an enterprise server side software developer position. And, I, and so I left there and worked on this software that helped people run sales contests instead. And what was that? Um, what was the language you were working in? So basically you moved from Cold Fusion to that was ASP. ASP. OK. Yeah. So I was doing everything on Windows back then. Yeah. Which, even though, like, like I said, at university, I really liked the Unix course. So I ran a Linux machine in my spare time. And actually, at the place where we did Cold Fusion mostly, we did do some Perl. So I would always use my Linux box to do that, and it was really fun. 
actually, I, I was lucky enough to have two computers at the office. I had like one Linux one and one Windows one. This is, I guess, before virtualization was practical or, you know, most people didn't do it. So I just had two monitors and two keyboards and two computers. And that was really fun. But then I ended up taking this job that was a, as a Windows developer. So I did a lot of ASP and then a lot of uh, like Java, J2EE. Because I guess back then we were like, well, how do we build a scalable sy system? And I guess the, the knowledge that we had been told was like, J2E, this is how you do it. You write enterprise Java beans and you have them you know, communicate and you configure everything in XML and things like that. And we bought into that. Um, and then I, after five years of working in Java, I realized very much that like, I was like, wow, it's just, it's so much, it's so much work. It's so much, what, what, what should I say? Like tedious work. Typing. <laughs> yeah, it's just so much. Like, it felt like I liked the object-oriented patterns a lot, and I felt like I grew a lot by, by that. But it was, yeah, it was just so much boilerplate, and so much typing and stuff like that. So, and how was I, it for you to switch between the languages? Was that was that easy for you? How, like, I've I've actually, for the most part, never found it that difficult. Like, um, having said that, like, there's, I've I've mostly stuck to like. Uh, like, uh, I guess, imperative or, or object-oriented programming languages in my life. Um, I have like, I don't have much experience with things like Lisp or other functional languages. Um, so, but for the most part, it wasn't, it was never that hard for me. I was like, from, co from co Cold Fusion to like ASP, it was like, I, I didn't like take any courses or anything. I just kind of read some online tutorials. And when I started there, I was just like, I'll just jump into it. And it wasn't, and it wasn't hard. And Java, I had learned a little bit in school, but I, I learned a lot more about when we the J2EE stuff. That, like, we had books on and things like that because it's extremely complicated if you guys have ever done it. It's no, just like, there's so many things you need to know. It's not, you can't just jump in and do it. You have to, like, configure all these things and, like, yeah, anytime you want to make something like a model, you'd have to, like, configure it in the three places and figure out your deployment and all this stuff. Java's kind of an interesting language. Like, I always thought, like, you know, there's a time and a place for it. Like it's maybe some, it's maybe you can compare it to like, uh, I don't know, like a carrier truck. It's not fast, uh, but you know, it's durable and it's tested and it gets things done. So like, I see why banks and things like that love it, you know, because it's like, it's been around for a while. It's like, it's understood and you know, it's, it's not fun to develop for, but you know, but you can make a robust solution with it. But I found that personally, like, I'd rather just get things done. I'd rather focus on, you know, actually, you know, shipping things quickly. So at the time that I was doing this J2EE stuff, um, I guess I'd been reading a lot of programming blogs and I'd seen stuff about Ruby on Rails. And uh, that I was like, oh, this seems kind of interesting to me. So like over a weekend, I started like doing a tutorial. And um, I really, re like, it really, like, yeah, I guess spoke to me is the right way to say it. Like it, there was something like philosophical about it that I really understood. I guess because I came from the Java background, I really liked the object-oriented aspects of Rails and sorry of Ruby and, and Rails and how it was all put together. But then I also really liked how fast I could develop things. Like I was just amazed that I was like, oh, I can create like a 10-line a Ruby file and it's a model and all of a sudden I can query on it and stuff. And I don't have to restart a server every time I make a change to a page and all these things like that. So I found that like really appealing. And at the same time, I had this idea. You mentioned this game that I did, Formors, which is like, uh, it's a web-based role-playing game, which is like a parody of the internet as a whole. So instead of something like, um, 
you know, a typical role-playing game, you pick like a fighter or a magic user or a thief or something like this. And this, you pick like an archetype of an internet user, like a troll <laughs> or a newbie or something like that. And then you go into fake websites and you own them for experience and stuff like that. So I had this idea for this crazy video game with some friends, this web-based role-playing game. And, uh, and I just learned Rails at the time. So I was just like, you know what, let's use this to prototype this game. And before I knew it, I was like having so much more fun working on the game than I was on my day job. So at the time I was like, well, is there some way financially that I can, you know, figure things out so that I could work on this, you know, game full time and like try it as a startup. And I guess I'd been, I'd read Paul Graham's book, Hackers and Painters, and I'd been reading Hacker News at that time. And I'm like, yes, I'm going to do a game startup. It's going to be super fun. Mm -hmm. And then I'm... Um, Lucky or, I guess, unlucky, depending on how you look at it, I I'd, uh, received an inheritance around that time, so my aunt passed away. That's the unlucky part. But it did give me a little cash on the side. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to spend like as much time as it takes to prototype this game. And it ended up being about like a year before um, we came up with a version that we like thought worked really well. And we put it out there, and it was like quite successful. We got covered in like Wired and The Onion, and it was, you know, at the time, like it's... It, when I say quite successful, like it doesn't compare to some of these like modern mobile games or anything like that. But we had thousands and thousands of users and, uh, and then the game started making money. So I ended up working on that for about five years of my life. I, you know, oh, this game, okay. yeah, bootstrapped. How did you wrote, make money? So the game was episodic. So you can play the first episode of the game for free. Oh. And then episodes two and three cost money. So I think about when they came out they cost about 10 bucks for each episode. But then we had a lot of things like, um, like you could, there was a forum in the game that was quite popular and uh, like where players could talk to each other and you could pay money to change another person's avatar, you know, like to prank them. So we had these <laughs> concepts of, so, and then they had to pay money to change it back. So like if you put something really insulting or something like that, they'd be like, oh, I have to spend some, we, we had an in-game currency called brownie points and you could use money to buy brownie points and then exchange brownie points for you know, things like that. Okay, so you basically you end up paying real money to change them, but it's it's game money. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I, so I have a question, uh, because today I went to Forum Wars and I, I started clicking on the, you know, on starting to play, I guess. And I got, it, first I spent it, I spent a few seconds being insulted by a robot, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then I, and then I got my avatar that was generated. And yeah. And then I ended up on some sort of a site that looked like Google, but was not Google or something like yeah. that. What was I supposed to do there? Because I didn't, I didn't get it at all. Okay. Well, if you if you wait for a couple seconds, oh. uh, it, it'll eventually tell you search for anything. Oh, okay. So you're just supposed to search for something, and then when you search for something, a chat window pops up and the story continues. Like oh, the whole idea okay. was, you were playing an internet game in your browser, so we wanted it to seem like that's cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, like you said, well, one thing I want to talk about is uh, you mentioned that, you know, it insults you. Yeah. And uh, so at the time, a friend of mine had been, uh, who ended up being the main writer of the game, um, Mike Drack, he's a really good friend. He uh, had been working at a cartoon studio and he was often frustrated about how, because uh, they've ma ma mainly made uh, cartoons for children. And he was a writer there and amongst other things. And they wouldn't let him put anything even close to offensive into the show like mm -hmm. they were very particular like even jokes that were like extremely subtle you know like you couldn't 
they wouldn't allow it to be on TV. So he got quite upset with that. So at the time I was like, you know, this is the internet. We can do whatever we want. We can swear, we can be offensive. You know, him and I had enjoyed like, you know, kind of like a dark sense of humor, maybe like, uh, maybe dark isn't the right, the right word. Maybe it's more like, I don't know, cheeky sense of humor and stuff like that. So we kind of went overboard, I think, you know, we, we actually, we made some stuff that like in retrospect, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done today. Like one thing I keep meaning to do is go back and write a long blog entry about like where I play my own game and write about the things that I wouldn't, the same jokes I wouldn't have made today. Mm -hmm. Cause I feel like I've learned that certain, you know, certain words and things like that. Like we, we our whole thing was, well, we're insulting everyone. So it doesn't matter, but yeah. there are, I think we could have done that in a way you know, just with some minor edits that wouldn't have been quite as bad. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, like I am proud of the game we made because it was like, you know, it was five years of my life. We got hundreds of thousands of users, you know, uh, I learned so much about programming. It was like, you know, when you work at a job and, um, I'm sure many develop developers or programmers who listen to this can relate, but like sometimes you come in and you're like, Oh, I would have never built this module this way you know, mm -hmm. but someone else did it. So you can always criticize that, that they did it. And you'd be like, Oh, what were you thinking? Mm, exactly. But then it's, but it's another thing to, you know, try and do it on your own, you know, because you have to basically put your money where your mouth is and you have to be accountable for all those mistakes. So I was like, I'm going to build a site for the first time, like that I think like, cause I'd worked on larger sites in the past, like for clients and stuff like that, but I'd never built one from scratch. So I was, you know, completely accountable. And I think it taught me like, you know, that I am capable of doing this. I can start something from scratch and grow it to be, you know, quite a, quite a big site. Like I was actually just looking at the database the other day and there's like, there's like over 200 tables in it. And that might sound like bad design, but we added so many features over time, you know, like user generated content and, you know, auctions and forum and like the game. And there was all these classes and like, you know, MMOs are basically just all data, right? So it was just, we needed so many structures to do that. So I gained a lot of confidence about myself as a developer in the process. So how many of uh, you were there? Was it the two of you or more? there was only, I was the only developer. Okay. Um, and Mike was uh, the only writer and he didn't work on it full time. Like he worked on it about uh, half a year at a time. He had a job that was somewhat flexible. So I guess for about six months of the year, he'd work on it full time doing the writing for the next episode. And But I was programming on it full time. And then we had a lot of uh, volunteers and uh, collaborators. So by the time the third episode came around, the community had grown so much. And we had we basically like uh, did uh, we 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 had them help us write the content for the third episode. Like they contributed characters and we gave them access to our editing tools. And we had like so I think it was about 20 people from uh the community stepped up and helped us write the material for the third episode so the third episode is the best but uh unfortunately well, you have to play for the, through the first two to get there not that i think the first two are bad but like we that's just, a really like, cool idea to make it a community effort that's awesome yeah so we basically like we didn't we were like straight up honest we're like okay so this game makes money but it doesn't make a huge amount of money like i was making less doing this than i probably would have as a developer at the time just at a you know at a regular shop, but it was so much more fun. So I wasn't complaining. But when we, when we enlisted them, we're like, look, we have a certain budget for this and, uh, we'll figure out, you know, how we can do this and we'll give you, you know, free access to the game and we'll do all this stuff. But so many of these people, they just loved the game so much. They just wanted to contribute anyway. You know, they would have done it hundred percent for free. Uh, but we tried to, you know, reward them as much as we could. And they, they did such a great job. And, uh, they even helped edit each, like that. That's what's great. We, they, I, th I don't re recall exactly how Mike organize the teams because he did a lot of this but i think there's at least two of them writing each conversation or mission 
And so they got to edit each other's and then everyone else would then do a pass afterwards. You know, I guess these are techniques that he had learned from the writing room at the cartoon. So yeah, the quality was a lot higher. I wrote, you know, in episodes one and two, I ended up writing a bunch of the missions and stuff like that. But, and I, I can, I think I am funny from time to time, but it was always funnier when Mike would come in and edit it, you know? So. Yeah. Did you have any, any kind of, um, uh, anything to look at or to, to, um, to learn from except for, you know, maybe other games that you liked on how, you know, what is good game design and how do you do all these things? Or does, is this really just, you came up with this and, and wrote this from scratch and, and, yeah, basically designed the whole thing yourself. Well, I'd always been playing games, and right. I'd been um, a huge fan of World of Warcraft, which I think was a, a big inspiration for a lot of the mechanics. But then also, um, a, another friend of mine who was, like I guess, our third partner, now he didn't work on it, he didn't take any full-time time off, I believe, to work on it. But he's um, he's always been into board games. He's a huge board game nerd. So oh, he asked him for some input because uh, actually in particular, like you guys are, are German. He loves German board games. <laughs> like the, they're the most sophisticated, apparently. Although I think nowadays they've spread out. But there was like, I guess there was some kind of board game renaissance. Yeah, there's a whole whole Germany. industry going on now with, with that. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's spread out to the rest of the world. But I remember yeah. it was always these German board games. Those are the ones that are like, these are the best. Um, so I asked him for input because I was like, I have the idea of what makes a game fun, but like, let's, you know, could you give me any advice? So he ended up coming on and uh, being like our third partner or founder in the company. Um, and then just giving a lot of advice for like how to tweak gameplay and how to, you know, use a lot of these concepts that he had learned from board games to make the game better. But then the community, like, that's the thing, like gamers are amongst the most vocal, I think, uh, community members you can get. Like, uh, we'll get to this, I guess, when we discuss discourse, but some, the, I think the, all the, like two, two out of the top five forums we host are game forums right now because gamers are just super passionate about, you know, talking about games and stuff and they will give you like feedback for free, you know, well, I guess if they're playing your game, they've purchased your game, but they're just like, they want to talk about the game. They want to talk about the bit that's unbalanced, how this doesn't work. And there was, there was actually some moments of almost, I'd say crisis or like at least the community would escalate it to something like that when we were doing forum wars, which is like, this is so unbalanced. How can we, you know, we, here's this, here's my suggestion for a fix. And then another user would come in and be like, no, that would be so stupid. And they'd argue back and forth. And you kind of like, just maybe just let them argue. <laughs> and then they come to a solution and they're like, and then you're like, you know what? I think, I think I can implement that without too much difficulty as a programmer. And then I would do it. So like, I was kind of loosey goosey a lot. Like I used version control, but I was deploying all the time. You know, and sometimes I break the site and stuff like that. But they, they were quite understanding. I guess they knew it was just me. And after a while, I got better and, like, more careful at things. So, but, yeah, like, often we'd, you know, patch a feature, release a feature in a week or something like that just because it was, like, it was really fast-paced development. And, yeah. uh, I, I, and I loved it because, like, I, and this is another thing I really learned from this project was that, like, um, to me as a developer, the, one of the, my, my favorite feelings is having someone use my software. There's, Absolutely, not, yeah. there's nothing worse than having people like working on something and doing hard work and then realizing there's no users. Like it's just, so I was just like addicted to like this, like I could, I could release a feature 11 PM at night on a Saturday and I would have tons of feedback right away, you know, because there was just so many people using it. And that, that, that feeling was like super addictive and like, oh, while it was stressful as well, I just loved it. I just loved the rush of you know, doing that. So yeah, it's extremely motivating. I mean, for you to, you know, to keep you going basically. Exactly. So I can, can understand how you, how you were interested in doing that for so long. 
Yeah. So I did yeah. it for basically like five years. But then I was like, after the third episode came out, it was clear that like, you know, revenue was on the decline. And I was like, okay, so we have to, you know, I, it was my goal to keep it up and running as long as possible. Because I feel like, like, you know, like I said earlier, like I, I did learn a lot about myself at the time, but I feel like it's also kind of a snapshot of the internet around the year 2007. Because that those are the websites we parodied, you know, those are the and some of those are still around. But there's things like, you know, Twitter is not in the game at all, <laughs> you know, which is really interesting to think about. And I kind of want to just keep it up like so that eventually you just have this retro experience. Like, I don't know, like right now I can pay for the server. It's no big deal. We have a good deal on a co-location here in Toronto. But like at some point, like maybe, you know, I can maybe make it so you can virtualize it or something like that. Like I never want this game to go away. It's like it's my goal to just keep it up for absolutely as long as possible but i had to move on to other things yeah but that is funny because it will become retro and it that is that is pretty cool yeah good idea people still play like i don't know where these users come from i guess that's the cool thing about the internet is that you know the website more or less just works i mean i get the odd call like oh something is broken and maybe a hard drive you know is broken or something like that but for the most part it just runs smoothly and then people are still finding it and i'm wondering like who are these people like <laughs> it's been out so long and what what must they think of this game but they're you know they're playing the game and, and some of them are buying it and it you know it doesn't make a lot of money but it covers its own costs so i yeah i just i'd love to keep it around i think like people are way too quick to delete things you know like i really identify with like the archive team and other efforts online to preserve stuff you know especially like a game like there's be a lot of people who I think are like, oh, the second the game isn't doing well, let's just pull the plug and remove it. But mm -hmm. what about all that content that's there? Someone will stumble on it. Someone will want to see that, you know, so. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, if it's if it's possible to keep it up and running, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll do my best. Yeah. The one thing that worries me the most, honestly, is not the cost. It's the, it's like security patches, you know, because I've kept up to date with Rails security things, but it's it's running a version of Rails that's past its end of life. So oh, yeah. at some point yeah. it's going to become a, a maintenance nightmare. Yeah. yeah. So it hasn't, it hasn't been a problem yet, but that, that is my biggest fear is that like, you know, someone will figure out some security hole for an old version of rails and the rails team won't care because you know, they, it's long past its end of life and, right. but it's not practical for me to upgrade it. Like it's, it's just, there's so much code. Yeah. So, I guess this is a downside to, to moving on. I mean, I don't blame the rails people, but like it, it, it's it's it goes in the face of that. Let's keep software around forever because it's like well, there's a huge cost to doing that, you know. Right, but from my experience, it sticks around a lot longer than people usually or initially anticipate. Yeah, so. perhaps. Like I said, I always thought that maybe I could just make a VM of it. Like at a certain point, you could just download the VM, spin it up, and play it yourself. You know, then security wouldn't be as big of a deal. I'd have to scrub the database of all the private messages and all those things, but. Yeah. That's that's one way that I could keep the game around forever because that's that is my goal. You know, I never want to pull the plug. Very cool. So when did you switch? Like how long? Or you said this was it started in 2007? Yeah, I think it was. Okay. No, I think I, st I actually started a little earlier because I did about a year just on my own before we launched it because okay. I felt like I wanted it to be like a good game even before we had the first episode completely finished. But yeah, I think I did it from like. It was something like 2006 to 2011 ish. I think that sounds about right. And then I worked. I worked in between for uh, a couple of companies, like a local Toronto startup that was like that didn't go anywhere. And uh, and then I met. You know, I saw Jeff online. Uh, so Jeff Atwood, he's you know coding horror. He's the founder of Stack Overflow, probably 
I think the most useful site in the world for programmers. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and he was he was he was talking about forum wars. That's how I saw. He was on Twitter. He was mentioning it, and I was like, oh. And he and like I got some hints that he was thinking about forums. And like, if you're thinking about forums, you should talk to me because ah. like, not only like had I been a I've been a something awful goon like a avid forum user for. I, I don't know, 15 years. I don't I actually don't. That's a rough guess, but many years, at least 12 years. And so I made this game that parodies forums and that game that parodies forums also had forums. So I knew a lot about forums and I had also <laughs> been thinking about like, so I like, I was actually one of the few people that had written their own forum software from scratch. So he was like, oh yeah, let's talk. And then we just started talking about like his idea to, you know, do forum software as an open source project. And I was like, I'm on board. So I was like, I didn't, it didn't take like, it took like 30 seconds of thinking <laughs> to say like, I'm going to quit my job. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, wow. And, uh, yeah. So, and then we raised, we raised a little money. Um, and yeah, we started what, what is now discourse, which is my, my current thing and probably why I'm speaking to you guys today, Yep. which is, yeah. So it's, uh, open source forum software. It's in Ruby on rails on the server side. As I mentioned, I got into that from, you know, doing four more. So I've been doing rails for a while and then it's Ember JS on the front end. Um, so I've always, like, even Form Wars had a lot of JavaScript. I've always been interested in really rich experiences. So uh, when I saw Ember JS, you know, coming towards its, I guess, pre-release for version 1.0, I was quite interested. And I had some local friends who were using it. So I got into that. And uh, so our discourse from the very first prototype was on that stack, Rails on the server side and Ember JS JavaScript on the front end. And that's what I've been doing for the last, I think it's just... I think I just passed my three-year anniversary at this. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because when we got started, we were like, you know, one or two years in, we'll have a pretty good product. And now I'm thinking like, now it's good. Three years in, it's good. But really, this is like a 10-year thing. Like we don't, we want this offer to be really good. Because actually, I, I might take a step back if it's okay and explain like our mission. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, what was your your goal with this? And how did you guys basically figure out or settle on what you actually wanted to do and why. Yeah. Um, so basically what happened was, is like forum software, I feel is really integral to the web. Like there's actually, I mentioned earlier that I started using BBSs, like bulletin board systems that you dial up to. So I've always been into online discussions and, and in particular discussions that I think like happen in paragraph form. Like I think there's kind of been this movement in the last few years or whatever to shorter communication, you know, like text messages and status updates and, you know, whether it's on Facebook or 140 characters on Twitter. But I think there's like a lot of reasoned arguments that you can only have in paragraphs. And it's important that we don't, you know, forget that medium. So I've always loved forum software, but it's, it's interesting because there was a lot of, you know, the web pre-web 2.0, a lot of people were making, you know, vBulletin and PHPBB and things like that. And, you know, like software that was pretty good for the time that used, you know, like server-side databases and MySQL and PHP on the front end. But they kind of just stagnated. And they kind of like, if you still look at a lot of forums today, it's like, it, if you compare a site like Twitter or Facebook to like PHPBB, you're like, what is this? It's like, how is this not advanced? How has forum software stayed in su it's such a rut? And uh, so we actually thought like, oh, this is going to be easy. No one's, you know, we just want to update this. We want to update forum software to be, you know, for the next 10 years of web of the web because it's kind of it's kind of just stagnated and it's taken like, uh, you know, it's it's kind of second class compared to, you know, 
sites like Facebook and Twitter. And it was kind of important to us because, you know, Facebook actually does have discussions and things like that. But I don't want personally, like the future of all communication to go through one corporate website. You know, I want people to be able to install their own open source software and run their own forum. You know, I don't want people to have to be rely on one company for everything. And I think it's really important that we support that kind of vision. So from like the first first like second we ever considered doing this, it was always open source. And so, yeah, that, that was our goal. Let's take forum software and let's make it so that people can communicate in paragraphs in a really, you know, modern, easy to use uh, interface that like learns that, you know, takes knowledge from the last 10 years since PHPBB of, you know, advances in, you know, web development technology and apply those and try to make a good product. And that's what we're doing. And it's, it's still ongoing. Like it took a long time, you know, like when we started, we're like, oh, you know, it's actually pretty simple. It's just a text box that, you know, posts something on a screen, but we realized there's so much to it. You know, there's like, and people have so many needs for their community. Like some people want private communities and some people need security and they, we add features. And over time, like, I think the software has started to encompass more and more use cases. And it's like, finally the point where I'm like, I, I don't have to say like, well, ForumWars does that, but sorry, not ForumWars, Discourse does that, but like, we're finally getting rid of a lot of those butts to the point where I think like, it's actually now a really good piece of community software. And we've seen like a, a pretty good adoption. And I'm, so I'm really proud of that too. Yeah, it is. It is a very nice um, experience. I'm on that all the time, the Ember Forum. Nice. Very, very nice. Yeah. So what is the, the sort of the team composition? What What is, I mean, obviously you're, I guess, the, the technical lead. What is uh, Jeff's uh, position or what does, what does he do well, or has he done? I wouldn't say I'm the technical lead actually. There's okay. So Jeff and I started it, um, and then we actually brought in Sam Saffron um, from, uh, I guess he, he worked at Stack Overflow before. I guess that's what he was mostly known for because he wrote some technical articles for them. I think he also did like, oh, he wrote MIDI Profiler and Dapper, uh, which is the ORM for .NET that is quite popular. So it was the three of us are all technically founder, co-founder. That's our title. Um, I don't think technical decisions are made by any single person. Although I did write the initial version, you know, in Rails in Ember before Sam came on board, but that was with a lot of discussion with Jeff and stuff like that. So I think most most of those decisions are done, you know, kind of company wide or with a lot of discussion anyway, not right. made by a single person. So okay. it's a pretty it's a pretty small team. So there's us three as the co-founders, and then we have about uh, I think it's four other full-time employees now. And it's a completely remote company spread around the world. Uh, we're all developers except uh, one employee who's just, uh, who's just, <laughs> that's totally unfair, who's a sysadmin, but DevOps. So in a way, he is also a developer. Yeah. But yeah, so um, Jeff doesn't, initially the goal was that, you know, Jeff was going to program. He was going to learn Ruby and we'd all be developers. Uh, so I, I did say we all are, but like Jeff is, has a developer background. He is a developer, but he doesn't write much code on the site except for like CSS and stuff like that. Because um, isn't Stack Overflow is on a Windows uh, stack, isn't it? It's .NET, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So his, that was his background. So he was like, I'll learn Ruby. But then as he started to learn it, he was like, you know what? This isn't the best use of my time. Like it's probably better if, you know, I act as the champion of the software. So that's kind of how I explain Jeff's role. Besides, you know, co-founder and, you know, like I have to be totally honest, his clout helped the project a lot because people knew who he was and he has a very popular blog. You know, it helped us, you know, raise that initial investment and get a lot of our, 
initial popularity was all based on him. So he brought that's the company, but also he brings like uh, he's our, our champion user. And I feel like a lot of companies miss this. Like he he uses the software and knows the ins and outs better than anyone. Like so such that um, like if like it's weird because there's like parts of the software I've written and I've forgotten about because, you know, it's this esoteric feature or something or maybe something important for a certain class of user, but I don't use it that much. So a year later, I forgot how it works. And Jeff somehow remembers, like he uses every, he uses it and he's like, like, we don't actually have a QA department or anything because, um, one reason is because Jeff is so into the software and so, so much of a user of it that he's constantly using it. And if we break something, We'll know. know right away. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a huge asset to a team that's really hard to, you know, uh, I don't want to, yeah, underestimate that, the value that that contributes. Right. Because um, again, it's so easy to have like a team of people who is just like, oh, I'm focused on my part or I'm focused on this. But to have someone who's like, you know, using every single thing and knowing the ins and outs and, you know, we always know what to work on next and stuff like that. So that's kind of like his role now. And, uh, yeah, and the rest of us are developers, and uh, so we, you know, we at, we review pull requests, we uh, we contribute to the software, we build features, and then now that the company, um, so one thing I didn't explain is that our mo- our business model is that the software is hundred percent free, and when I say that I mean like some other forum software and other open source software out there has like a crippled version, like you get the you get the free version that doesn't have all the features, and you can pay us for you know a version that has more features. Our like discourse is a, the version that we host on our website is exactly the same one you download. So it has all the same features. Um, but what we do do is we have a second business. So we have discourse, which is the, you know, the open source project. Then we also have a hosting company and we provide uh, hosting uh, for discourse forums. And that's aimed at the person who's like, this is free software and I love it, but I don't have the time to run my own server or figure out how to, you know, maintain it and monitor it and things like that. So we offer that as like, that's how we actually make money. So increasingly so we get, you know, bigger customers and sometimes they have features like, oh, can you integrate discourse with our login mechanism or something like that. So so they basically, you can host it, you can have public ones, I guess, public forums and then do this privately for for corporations and things like that as well. Actually, almost, if not all, our customer ones are all public too. It's just like, so they're like, let's say you're a company, so... um, What's a large one? So Turtle Rock, the game developers, they have this game called Evolve that's quite popular. And they're one of our biggest forums right now because they're like, we want a forum for our users and we need all our community managers and all that software, but we don't have the time to host this ourselves and like, you know, figuring out the servers and the costs and all that stuff. So can you just run it and just we pay you every month and just keep it running smoothly for us? Nice. And I guess the way we approach it is like, well, we wrote the software, so we have a pretty good idea of how to run it smoothly. So that's the, that's the business side of it. Yeah. But, but I love, but I love it. Cause like, I feel like there's actually not that many people who are fortunate enough to work on like open source all day. Like I do, like I realize that that's not a job that many people can do. And I feel very privileged. Yeah. It sounds able. like you've had some really, really interesting and rare opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very lucky person. Like I would not, I don't, that's why like I, I, you know, I, I feel like, um, in some ways, like a social justice warrior, because I'm like, I realize the privilege that I've had. Like, I just, not everyone grew up with an IBM PC in their house from a very young age. You know, not everyone had, like, I worked on forums just because it was interesting to me. And then it happened that at that moment that that's what Jeff Atwood wanted to do. And then I got to, you know, jump to the next big thing. And it's, right. it's, it's so much is luck 
you know. Yeah, but you also give back, don't you? I mean, it's. uh, I think you. I've seen you um, at least at user groups. I'm sure you. Yeah. Yeah, you speak, and you you basically share your your knowledge. Yeah, I, I, I. That's always made me happy too. And I guess yeah, like um, I recognize the privilege, but I also like yeah, you. I want to give back to people, so I do spend a fair amount of time. You know, I've written a bunch of tutorials on Ember JS. I've helped them. Uh, with the framework with like uh, the Ember performance suite and, you know, I've contributed to their, you know, their Ember add-on that runs in a browser that allows you to profile websites. And yeah, I'll speak at like m- many engagements, uh, you know, like they, and I don't know if you've like, if you've covered this another, I saw you spoke with Steve Klavnik and stuff like that, but often yeah. like these things are unpaid and like often you lose money because like, oh, I have to drive an hour to this right. <laughs> thing like that. But I really like, I really enjoy that because but there's a selfish aspect to that too. Like I enjoy going out and talking to programmers, you know, and I enjoy meeting other developers and discussing how they're doing things. And I feel like that, you know, energizes me. Yep, exactly. That's the word I was looking for. And it energizes you and it's fun. So yeah, yeah exactly. Awesome. Yeah. But, but yeah, I do volunteer. Like we've done Rails Girls Summers of Co- Summer of Code twice now. Well, we're doing it the second time now. And I've, you know, I've taught Ladies Learning Code, which is an organization in Toronto where you help uh, people, I volunteer there to help them, women learn to program and things like that. But, uh, and I guess open source in a way, but that's like, is, is giving back. It's like, you know, constantly working with the community. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, just even having the code out there. I mean, I've, I actually, when I first was starting with, um, with Ember and, you know, I'm just doing that sort of, um, this not my full-time gig, but, um, I actually, because there wasn't that much out there at the time, I actually downloaded uh, Discourse and started awesome. looking through the code for that. So that was extremely helpful. And I was always wondering, since I think Discourse was, you know, probably one of the first or maybe the first, at least at that scale, Ember application, did you guys have a pretty good uh, connection or wire to to um, Tom and Yehuda? We did. For help? Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. So what, what happened was... Um, I actually met Yehuda at a conference here in Toronto, and I mentioned briefly to him, like, I'm working on an open source, you know, Ember project, and uh, I think it's going to be great. And he's like, oh, we already have one. It's Travis, you know, like, uh, and Travis is a really cool CI system. Oh, yeah, they were there too, yeah. And I was like, awesome. Um, And we kept working on it. But after a certain point, I was like, you know what, Jeff, maybe you should, you know, reach out to them and say, like, like, look at what we're building, because we're doing so much in secret, and I hadn't told them what it was. So Jeff went down to the Tilda office because they were in San Francisco at the time and, and demo discourse and they loved it. They were like, oh, this is so cool. I had no idea nobody, any someone was working on this. And they're like, actually, we'd love to use it right now as the Ember forums. So the Ember forums were actually our first forum that we hosted that wasn't yeah. ours. And then they reviewed our source code, you know, because it was, open. you know, we gave them access to our GitHub repo before we launched. And, uh, and they were like, oh, well, we have to, up- we have to update to the new router, like, because you know, if you're going to release the source code, we want you to be on the latest uh, Ember, you know, I guess, what would you call it? Like best practices. Right. And our router had been something that I had hand rolled at the time. Because when I started with Ember, there wasn't like an official router and things like that. It's come, when I think about that, it's ridiculous. Like it's come so far. But I had to write my own. And they were like, no, now that we have one, you have to use this. And I was like, okay. So what they actually did was, I guess, because they recognized the importance of having a pretty big open source project. They gave me like an unprecedented level of support in those early days. So oh, I actually had yeah. Yehuda on Instant Messenger. <laughs> and it's, I don't know like if nice. like uh, most people realize, but he's an extremely busy person. And like I was aware of that from the from the first day, but, I, but he was like, no, if you have a question, ask me right away. So 
leading up to our release, um, you know, they really helped me upgrade to their router because they wanted it to be like that and uh, to like just be on their latest version. And we did that, and it it really really helped us out. Now after after we released, it's like I I don't talk to them that often anymore. Like I see them at conferences that I've spoken I spoke at and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. I see Tom or Yehuda once or twice a year, but we don't talk that much. But in those early days, I really appreciated that, and I think it's like a testament to them seeing like like they just loved the software. They were like, oh, this is so cool. We we have to help you out with this. And I will be forever grateful to that. And I think that's perhaps one reason why I feel like I have to give back so much to Ember because they gave me so much. Yeah, because yeah, like I said, it was in the in the early days. There wasn't that much around, and I was always wondering, well, how how do these guys do that? How do they know all this stuff? <laughs> so, well, yeah. there was also there was a a small community as well at the time yeah. that I had access to, and like uh, there were people here in Toronto. So I I founded with some people here at Unspace, a local Toronto dev shop, uh, the Ember, you know, meet Toronto meetup, and so I met a bunch of people through there. And I definitely did not do it on my own, and it wasn't. You know, it wasn't most of the feedback I actually got from them was about the router upgrade. So a lot of the other things I, f I just figured out with the help of the community. Mm -hmm. But that's a great I, another great thing of open source is like when when people see that you're doing open source work, I think a lot of open source people are really eager to help you. Yeah. You know, because it all it all helps the same ecosystem. Like exactly. If, yeah. If discourse is successful, that helps Ember. And if Ember is successful, that helps discourse. Yeah. You know? So. So how how did you you said I'm just curious how do you how you made the decision to go with Ember because that was at such an early point. I just I I've been okay. So I one of the startups I worked at I mentioned we did a huge JavaScript application. Uh, when I say huge, I mean like client side, and uh, we wrote it like in 100% jQuery at the time, and it was a we had this amazing user interface designer here from Toronto. Um, and he did an amazing job making the site that we were working on look fantastic. But the, the code was just like, we had so much JavaScript code to handle like all these Ajax requests and buttons and, you know, things sliding. And, and it just, it very quickly became unmanageable. And I recognized this, like, there's a, something's wrong here. Like organizing this code shouldn't be this difficult. Like we have no way to test it. There's no way, you know, we had these modules that were like, thousands of lines long because we just didn't know how to separate things. So when, uh, when Ember, like I kept an eye on Ember from the early days, um, when it was Sprout Core, because I had a friend who was using it for a project, but I didn't really like it in the Sprout, the Sprout Core form that it was. That's what was extracted from Apple because it was kind of supposed to be like Cocoa, I guess, for the web. And it had a, like a focus on widgets and things like that. And I was never really into like you know, just using a bunch of widgets. I always liked HTML and stuff. So when I saw that they relaunched it as Amber, which eventually became Ember, mm -hmm. as like kind of look at this this JavaScript framework that organizes your code and you write HTML templates and handlebars. I was like, wow, this really speaks to me. Like I found like that, like the organization is the thing that I really liked. The way that it said, this is what a module should be called and this is where it, the file name it should be in and, you know, you should do this and it wires up automatically. And I don't actually think it's a huge surprise that Ember spoke to me because I'd been such a fan of Rails for a long time. And, you know, Yehuda Katz worked on Rails and right. he had learned <clears throat> a Rails core and he had learned a lot about those principles of, you know, like, don't repeat yourself and, uh, you know, like... Um, convention over configuration and things like that that he brought to ember so i was just like oh i get this like i totally understand philosophically why they're doing things this way so i just fell in love right away yes so, was it also partly because of who was behind ember or i mean i found out about it because yehuda so i think that did help 
Um, yeah. I wasn't familiar with Tom Dale's work at the time. So I, I don't know. I think for me, it was mostly like when I was just reading the tutorials, like it was, I saw it on Hacker News or something and I was like, oh wow, yeah, this is, this is now what's coming come of Sprout Core. And uh, I just, I really liked it. And so I, it's funny cause like we, when I was building the first version of Discourse, you know, it was just like, uh, it was a pro in our prototypes phase. I was like, I'm just going to use it for the prototype. And if you recall, that's exactly what I said about forum wars with Rails too. I was just like, this is, this is sometimes what I do. It like sticks. when you have a, yeah, when you have a new excuse to try something, you, yeah. you know, you're like, this is a prototype. I'm going to build it using this. And sometimes you, that thing really, you know, really works out well. And that's what happened with me and Ember. I just like really enjoyed it. I mean, there's other times I've done side projects in other languages and I've been like, oh, or frameworks and it just either it hasn't worked like clicked as well or whatever i'd like to say that i did like this huge technical analysis and you know looked at all the possibility <laughs> like looked at every framework and did like yeah. a checklist but i didn't it was just more like oh this this is what i like this is this as a developer this speaks to me yeah it's usually a gut feel it's at least that's what i've experienced yeah so yeah. i have a question uh so so during those three years uh, was there anything that you like were surprised by or um, something interesting that you learned that that you didn't expect because I, because I would I would just uh, assume that those three years weren't necessarily all the way smooth definitely not um, I'm trying to think of I feel like I'm always learning so it's actually hard for me to take out particular lessons perhaps yeah. but i do remember well like one thing that really that i've learned a lot about is like uh javascript performance on phones i think is something that uh oh you yeah know, surprised me and um at least like i i always knew phones were slower than computers i expected that but it's what's really curious is that like we see such differing javascript performance on android versus ios even when the phones are similar in specs How's the difference? You, uh, I often find that uh, Android is much, much slower. Huh. Like it's it, at first I thought like, oh, it's just like, you know, Android just like hasn't had as much time or something like that. But I actually believe it's just that uh, JSC, the JavaScript framework uh, that sorry, the JavaScript engine that runs Safari is very fast and it makes it's not so it's not so much that Android is slow. It's just that iOS is very fast. So we've actually had to make some concessions and stuff like that to make, you know, a JavaScript heavy application run well on Android. We've had to like, you know, we load fewer posts into memory and we do tricks like that just on Android. Mm. Uh, so that, that surprised me. Um, but I guess on the other hand, you know, when I was doing web stuff back in the day, it was like IE versus Netscape versus, you know, the, I've, we've always had to deal with different browser profiles yeah. and things like that. I was just... I just remembered that that surprised me a lot about performance. And we spent more time probably on Android performance than I would have guessed that I would have had to Interesting. just to get because there's so many people who use Android. So it's like, yeah. it's important. Totally. I, know, I know a lot of developers and a lot of techie people who have iOS and then you're, there's this desire to just like, Oh, let's make it work for my own phone. But you realize the market is much bigger than just you. And we want people to be able to use, you know, discourse yeah. on and, these. And so, um, because I was always wondering, um, when I was researching um, Ember a little bit for, for the mobile use case, I found it very difficult to find really anything about how to, how to use Ember on mobile phones. Is there anything that, that you could say, like that what you would 
that you know do you have to do you have to change something in the code or do you have to leave certain parts of ember out to make it performant or is it or is it fine for smaller things i think it's for smaller things it is totally fine like especially it's interesting because you know ember has gotten a lot faster in the time that i've used it like mm -hmm. from pre 1.0 they did a lot of optimizations they got html bars in there and now they have this new glimmer rendering engine in ember 2.0 so like they've actually made crazy strides in performance so i think like if you just out of the box just are building an app on ember it's probably fast enough um but you know we did what we ended up doing is things that i think i, I mean i don't i don't know if we're talking about building a mobile app here versus an app like discourse which has you know desktop and a mobile version from the same app and what we did there is we actually run essentially the same code base 100 we just oh. switch out certain templates and this is something that ember actually makes pretty easy to do um, you can write your own resolver with just a few lines of code and basically what happens is if you're if you're on a mobile device certain templates it looks for a mobile version of that template if you're on that device and serves you that up rather than the desktop one and then of course we have css that does you know we have a mobile css versus a desktop css so you're often getting less markup because we don't give you every single power feature on desktop on the mobile experience because most people like honestly don't they like reading on mobile and writing like a simple reply but they don't need all the advanced controls and things like that yeah. um, because you're not going to sit there and write a novel on a phone or if you are you're very you're very eccentric <laughs> so we that's what we do and that that's yeah. worked quite well for us and like i said most of the like we did do a lot of profiling we worked uh, we filled out bugs with the google team we've ended up filling out browser bugs with you know iOS too, because in iOS 8, they broke a lot of like position fixed and all these things that kind of screwed us over. But, um, but at the end, what actually made the most difference is, you know, just tuning what, we're, how much we're showing on the screen at once on Android. Right. And it didn't, it didn't even hurt the experience that much. Like, so by default on desktop, for example, we load 20 posts into memory at once. And as you scroll, we have infinite scrolling, we unload some and load new ones in. And on Android, we just load five, I think. Mm -hmm. So that's much less, but the screen is much smaller. So you actually, right. it takes you a while to scroll to the bottom of those five posts. Mm -hmm. So think tuning like that actually added up to be a lot of performance for us. And so, and on the back end, did you hit any limits with, with Rails or are you happy with, with performance there? I, I like Rails. I think it's, it's done great. Now, um, I should mention from a performance standpoint that Sam Saffron, the, our third co-founder, he, um, He's obsessed with performance, I'd say. And I don't think that's, I don't think he'd be upset with me for saying obsessed. He's just like, that's what really drives him and that's what keeps him really interested in things. So he spent a lot of time uh, meticulously profiling Rails and making it faster. And uh, he's actually contributed a lot to Rails. He's contributed to Ruby. Um, and as, like I said, his mini profiler thing is like crazy good for op looking at server side performance. Now, having said that, I never thought that our performance was bad. It's just that. Like, again, out of the box, if you use Rails and you, you, know, you look for your SQL queries that are a little slow, which is usually not that hard, uh, you actually get pretty good performance. Um, but he's, he's taken it further and he squeezed out excellent performance. So our, our server side is, is very fast. And uh, that's mostly due to his hard work. Cool. Uh, and so, so do you know um, what is the, the maximum amount of users you have in your biggest forum then? How many people are using? Uh, that's that's private. I think if like okay. people people sometimes ask, like, what's the biggest discourse forum that you run? <laughs> but it's like I, I don't have the ability to say. I mean, okay. there is some of this information is available public publicly if a forum you know displays their about page. But uh, some of the forums are quite big. Um, mm. 
and we do a fair amount of a fair amount of traffic now because we because we run hundreds we host hundreds of forums now yeah so uh we have a co-location and that's you know we host it all ourselves on bare metal servers and uh we have we have uh, quite a few of those now and they host quite a few sites but it it scales very well you can actually run discourse though like if you if you don't have money for our hosting option and you're more comfortable doing things yourselves, you can run it on DigitalOcean. A lot of people run it on like the five the ten dollar a month plan runs it quite well. If your forum doesn't have, you know, tens of thousands of users of active users, right. uh, which which many forums don't, and even like some people have had success with the five dollar a month plan. Uh, it's it's mostly like when you want to upgrade and we have to do your gem installs and things like that that it slows down. Mm. But yeah, it does it does run pretty well. Is there and I think a, part like of that is that. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I think part of it's that we like because it's so JavaScript heavy that the server is just sending JSON. Like it's not doing as much rendering as a lot of, you know, other sites do. It's just sending these JSON packets back and forth, and uh, all the rendering is done by Ember. So that keeps a lot of the load off. Cool. Have you guys kept uh, pretty much up to date with um, the releases of Ember, or um, are you a little bit uh, behind? I haven't looked at it in a while. We are slightly behind now. We mm -hmm. try to keep up to date, but sometimes we slip out. Like uh, you know, every, every couple months or so, we say like, okay, let's do a little work and keep get us up to the latest thing. As the thing is, as they were getting to um, towards Ember two, they've been deprecating a lot of things, and I agree with actually all the deprecations. But it, with a large website like ours, it can be a considerable amount of work to do the refactoring necessary to keep up with those deprecations because they're on. Because they use like a Chrome release cycle now. I think it's six weeks. Yes, the Ember release thing. So we don't. I can't dedicate time every six weeks for a new release. So we usually batch it up, you know, and do a couple releases at once. So I think we're on uh, Ember one point eleven right okay. now, yeah. and I think the latest stable is one point thirteen. So yes. we're not we're not that far behind. But it's important that we keep up, you know, and we will continue to do that so i think we've removed all the deprecations that we have in our release so we're probably just about ready now to jump to the to the next one but after 2.0 they're going to stabilize it for a while they're going to be like you know like it's at 2.0 is in beta now i believe and it's going to be stable very soon and they're going to be like we're not going to change things for a while like this is what we consider a good stable way to build apps yeah but since uh, you guys have been around um well way before ember app kit and ember cli for sure you had your own build process. Do you still have your own build process, or have you switched over to Ember CLI? Unfortunately, we still use our own process. Okay. Um, I would really love to be on Ember CLI, but uh, there's a fair amount of work that we um, that we had to do to get up to, like, because we didn't use modules and things like that, or like ES6 modules, um, until, you know later into the game. And there's like a lot of old code that we have to upgrade that, that we have like the words discourse dot module name like hard-coded as globals that we have mm -hmm. to you know refactor to be modules having said that we're now done the vast majority of the files so i think we are ready soonish to do that and i would love to do that um having said that it does work well it's just like it's more of an investment right now because you have to run rails to run the ember app and it would be nice if some developers like in particular like a front-end developer or something could just download the javascript app and run that on the command line, because I think it's a lot simpler than you know having a local database and all those things that you don't necessarily need, you know, to, right. to hack on Discourse. Yeah. Like but you can well, actually, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, like, if you run Ember CLI locally, you can actually point. It has support for a proxy, so you could point it to our test server, and then have your Ember CLI locally, you know, talking to our 
you know, test server with all the dummy data on it. So you wouldn't have to have a local database or Redis or anything. You could just hack on it and see how your changes reflect with a working API, which is pretty cool, I think. Yeah. Now, I was just going to say, I mean, you guys, since you've been around for uh, some time with this software, it's, you know, considerable effort to move to uh, to Ember CLI, I'm sure, as you yeah. described. Yeah. Having said that, it's like the approach I took is just slowly move towards it. Every time I open a file to deal with something, if it's not updated to like an ES6 module, I make it an ES6 module. Like mm -hmm. the Boy Scout principle of basically leave it nicer than you found it. Yeah. You know, like that's, I don't, I don't support usually like, okay, let's take a month and just get it all done. Like I'd rather just, you know, in pieces slowly change our code base so it looks more like an Ember CLI app. And then at a certain point we can just, you know, move it over. That's right. the goal. Yeah, I like that. Leave it nicer than you found it. Very good. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's on it as as I've gotten older and stuff that I feel like that's one of my favorite approaches to software development. Yeah. Like avoid big refactors just when you and when you enter a method you're like okay now I'm adding a feature to this method. Oh, this is the method I know has been ugly for a long time. This is my chance to, you know, like you know, make the method better than it was when I came in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I have to feel. So I've been listening to. Uh, I think was the. I think it was called the Stack Exchange podcast, where um, mm -hmm. during the time where Jeff Atwood was still at Stack Overflow, and they were always talking a lot about a lot of the theory behind <clears throat> how they are dealing with converters and the rewards and when you can edit and when you can, you know. Uh, I don't know, ban somebody and all this kind of stuff. And it it, it, it seemed like there was really an in incredible amount of thought that especially Jeff put into this whole system at Stack Exchange and Stack Overflow. And I kind of felt like uh, using Discourse, I, I kind of recognized a lot of, simil a lot of the sim s s similar mechanics maybe <clears throat> um, also in Discourse. Can you say anything about that? How much? Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing I can say is in the beginning, we thought we'd have more of them, which is interesting to me because, cause, you know, I don't know what you call it, gamif gamification or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like uh, trust levels is kind of how we always thought of it. So like when a user comes to your site, they're trust level zero and certain actions they do, they get promoted to trust level one, two, et cetera, and they get more things that they can do. So in the beginning, we thought this was going to be incredibly important. And this was one thing that was going to separate discourse. Uh, and I'm not saying it's, it hasn't. But the one thing we found was that there was so many other battles to fight first, you know, in particular about the user interface and, you know, exposing content to the user and, and finding content. Uh, that while we do have some of those controls, it wasn't as much as we initially thought. Like things like badges that you would earn mm -hmm. uh, for performing certain actions, we didn't implement those until like I think a year and a half or two years into into our progress, which is quite interesting. Now, where we are today, the trust level stuff is quite interesting. Like one thing we found, so for example, like I said, you you start as trust level zero, um, and that gives you certain um, restrictions. For example, you can't post uh, I think more than two links. In a post, and this and this one reason is is like for spam because we found that like spammers come to a site and they'll sign up and they'll want to post tons of links, so we restrict that. And then once you've you know read a certain amount of posts and participated in the forum, you can all of a sudden you can post more. But we also do things like the link on your profile, 
you know, gets a no follow and things like that. And then eventually what ends up happening is we, we give you the ability to edit uh, titles and recategorize and things like that. And that we found is really useful because what generally happens is if someone becomes, you know, like uh, uh, a good user of your forum, they know when someone has posted something in the wrong category. And maybe on other software, what they'd have to do is report that to a moderator and then the moderator would have to come and recategorize it or you know, maybe the title has a typo and the user can't edit it, things like that. Uh, a trust level three user can come in and, you know, tidy things up. So I, I love that we have that stuff in discourse and I think it's a really good idea. It's just, um, it takes time, I think, to figure out exactly what is the natural progression and what won't bother users. Because sometimes things, you, what you don't want to do is push a user away because they come to your site and they're like, I'm trying to post two links to my GitHub repo. And it says, I can't do that because that's spam. Yours is the worst software in the world. You know, you don't want to, you don't want that to happen. So we're, we're constantly working on that. And I think mm -hmm. like trust level four, for example, I think we still haven't defined, like mm -hmm. we're still, we're still working on it. We're still, you know, building this up. Maybe one major difference is that like people use forum software for years sometimes. Like if there's something that interests you, um, you might, you know, you might follow that form for years. And how do you expect the trust to grow over that period of time? So we're still figuring that out. Hmm. Okay. I'm interested in where this evil trout name and your <laughs> avatar came from. Okay. Um, so I, I'm a big fan, by the way, of like nicknames and aliases. Um, I got started in, like I said, on BBSs back in the day. And back in the day, no one used the real name. Um, everyone had some kind of alias. And I had tons of stupid ones because I was a kid. And I thought like, oh, this sounds so cool. I remember I was called the Nocturnal Thief or TNT. <laughs> and even saying that now just embarrasses me. I don't know why I just said it because now people are going to listen to this. And and I just always loved that. And um I guess the, the current trend is for all developers or people who are on GitHub and stuff like that to use their real names. Like people do use nicknames. There are some out there, but, you know, like Tenderlove and things like that. Yeah. But most people based it on their names. And I don't know, I think we missed out on a really cool aspect of, you know, participating online. Like I don't hide my name. It's really easy to see, but um, I like having the nickname too. And there's, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why I like it. One is that like, it's memorable. The name Robin Ward I don't know. Like I, it's a pretty simple, I guess, I guess in North America, I'm looking at it. Like it's a pretty typical name. It's nothing really that unusual, but evil trout, you know, it gives you a picture in your head and you can actually remember it. So what actually happened at Emberconf the first time I went there was I would meet people in line. I'd be like in line to get food or something like that, or just, you know, hanging out outside a conference room. And I'd be like, Oh, hi, I'm Robin. And they'd be like, cool. I'm like, it's actually evil trout. They're like, Oh, <laughs> I know who you are now. Cause it just, you know, that just sticks with them. And also yeah, the avatar yeah. does too, because yeah. it gives you like an image of that. So where it came from was that like, when I was doing four wars, I'd realized I wanted an alias. Cause this, this like a uh, web-based role-playing game I'm building, like, everyone needs a persona and something that they're going to role play. And I'm like, I just want, I need a new alias. It had been a long time since I'd had a good one. None of the ones I'd ever had had really stuck. So I was just like, I was just thinking of words and putting two random words together. And for some reason, evil trout just made this funny image in my head. Like, why would a trout be evil? What would that, you know, what could he possibly do? And, uh, I had a friend at the time, an artist we were working with, uh, as a contractor for four mores. And, uh, he just took it, without me even prompting him, he just took a picture of a fish and drew like a mustache and a top hat on it. And I thought it was so funny. I'm like this, this evil fish. So it kind of stuck with it. And I've had various versions of that since. So what actually happened, my current 
image I'm using on Twitter. Um, my wife and my father for Christmas, I think last year got together and got like a watercolor artist to do a contract painting of it and painted that fish. And so I have it, I have, I I really should still frame it. It's sitting right here, but I love it. And because I'm just like, this is, this is so perfect. This, like this version of my image. So I kind of want one drawn every year or two or something like that. And I'd love to have this wall just full of different artist versions of my avatar. That's awesome. You might see that as like narcissistic but i just think it's like it's just embracing the the theme and i think like it's just fun and more people should do it so that's exactly what it is it's fun yeah i wish i had chosen something more creative yeah i love it i've even i've even honestly considered getting like a tattoo of it at some point because it's as much it is part of me you know it's like it's my online persona yeah. yeah But that's so true. I mean, if, you know, you go somewhere and you say your name, somebody might not know you. And probably even if you had your, your avatar on, on your shirt, they'd immediately know who you are. Yeah, I have. A, I actually got a T-shirt printed up for a conference I went to and it was great because people were just like, oh, you're evil. I know who you are. You're <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, like it's funny because people, I remember there was one guy on Twitter was like, at my office, someone was like, were you reading that guy's Ember tutorial? What was his name? Stinkfish? Like, Do you mean Evil Trout? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, it's just like, <laughs> you, like, like you just, some, you, something, the fish part stuck, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Good choice, that's for sure. I'm thinking about changing my name again. <laughs> yeah, you should do it. <laughs> and then, yeah. like on Forum Wars, they made the alternate universe version of it which is good tuna which is like, <laughs> you know, like they just users can be really creative yeah. nice that's funny do you have any more uh, questions Kalia? uh nope all right should we go to picks then yeah let's do it awesome well why don't you start then okay i'm gonna start uh okay so i've i've been uh, a little bit fascinated by um, Jafar Hussein, he is uh, well fascinated by the things he is saying because basically he is talking a lot. He he works for Netflix and he is talking a lot about how they use reactive programming and um, um, observables and functional reactive programming uh, at Netflix to solve um, a lot of you know. Uh, UI interface, uh, just user interface problems um, with functional programming and make it somehow make the code really very, very simple because especially because because they're using observables to um, basically think about they're thinking about events as collections because events are basically collections in time and all that stuff. So basically, there's a bunch of talks by him on YouTube, and I definitely recommend checking that out. He's also talking about their backend, which is also integrated in that. So basically, he came from Microsoft. He had, or he, I think he has now six, year, six years of uh, experience with reactive programming. And, um, and, he brought, and when he went to Netflix, he got the opportunity to basically um, re-architecture their whole... Uh, technology uh, for the web to to just build systems with uh, re- reactive programming and that's um, it's all very interesting he's also part of the TC39 uh, working on ES6 and he's kind of pushing those kind of uh, things he's trying to push the ability of 
for for JavaScript to do um, exactly that, um, like more reaction, uh, reactive programming and functional programming, and also, um, I think, a third thing which I can't remember. Anyway, uh, he was also on JavaScript Jabber uh, on the podcast um, there uh, on the the latest episode, I think. So that was also very interesting. He explains ES6 very very well, so that was really cool. Yeah, his rapid fire question thing there, that was amazing, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was just that's... yeah, it was really amazing. I've never heard anybody explain uh ES6 features as well as he did. Basically. So quickly, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I agree, he's awesome. Cool. I've had him at a conference and even though he didn't know who I was, he spoke to me for hours about reactive stuff. He's really cool. Yeah. Very approachable. It's very and it's also a little bit mind blowing when you see it for the first time, like the stuff they can do with that with those principles basically. So, uh, so th my second pick then, uh, is related to that. So it's, um, well, actually all my picks are because, oh no, just my second pick. Yeah. Because, um, because it's reactive extensions for JavaScript, which is, um, which you can get, um, on GitHub. It's just an open source project and you can download it and use, um, obser observables and many other features, uh, right away. In your in your programs, so that's very that's very cool. So I'm looking into that. I'm I'm trying to 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 get uh, into that a little deeper because we might use it uh, in our application at work, at least partly. So um, that's pretty cool. And then the third pick is actually it is slightly related because it's the other podcast that uh, me and Henning and Rockbot from NPM are doing together, which is called Reactive which was also inspired by reactive programming, actually. I mean, the name was, but not necessarily the content of the podcast. So those are my three um, picks. And then my music pick is today is, uh, is a song called Fester Skank Remix, uh, which is by Le Lethal B and uh, some up-and-coming UK rappers, basically. Um, it's like just UK kind of... It's a, it's a song about a dance, and it's just super super cool like i really enjoy the whole uh, vibe of it and it's as usual like i tend to pick the like high energy kind of uh, electronic music with vocals and rappers on it and stuff like that so that's exactly that kind of lane again yeah that's my picks very cool thank you um my first pick is a uh, conference talk it's actually the keynote and it's titled The End of Single Page Apps and it's by Chris C i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly um, he's extremely passionate, and it's just it, it's a very fun talk to watch. And basically what he's trying to get across is that even though um, our single-page apps are really great and do amazing things, is that there should be more, and that um, we're really you know, at the point now where desktop apps were maybe 20 years ago, I think is what he said, that basically what users want or need is to bridge applications. They want to create something in, you know, application A, cut and paste it into application B. And um, he's trying to move that principle or concept forward for web applications. Very, very interesting talk to watch. <clears throat> and uh, my second pick is PHP Storm by JetBrains. Um, hey. And the, <laughs> yeah, the backstory there is, yeah, obviously I do most of my work in PHP and I have been doing that in Vim. And um, I had a few people recommend to check out PHP Storm. And I finally did at the beginning of this week. And I'm totally blown away. 
it's truly, truly amazing. We had talked about, um, you know, IDEs in our other show, I guess. And, and one of the things that we had said is that uh, Visual Studio, I think Rockbot or Raquel basically also said that that was probably, you know, the best IDE that she had ever worked with. And that was the same experience for me in my C++ days. And um, I had gone away from Java IDEs such as NetBeans and Eclipse and things like that because of performance. But this thing is is insane. Um, it's very, very nice, especially for code completion. And like you had said, Khalil, it's, it's extremely smart uh, when it comes to your code. So I was very, very impressed. So are you using uh, it in Vim mode or in... Yes, I'm, I'm using it in Vim mode. <laughs> so it's like double goodness because, you know, I can still navigate the actual text really fast and do all my stuff plus all the other goodness. So, so, does, it, do, so does it support enough of the shortcuts that you need or are you missing some um, It's, well, yeah, that's that's a whole other story, but it's, it's, okay. gonna, it's a painful <laughs> process, but I'm willing to go it just because I think the benefit is... Is big enough. Um, there's enough there to to get a, to get by, and the things that you know you can't do um, with Vim shortcuts, you can you can probably map to those keys, so you can keep a lot of the things the same. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's my second pick. I don't have a third one. Uh, my music pick is uh, just something I heard on the radio again the other day. A song I really like. It's. Uh, Say It Right by Nelly Furtado and uh, um, I'm Furtado, excuse me. And um, no particular reason, just sounds good. I like it. That's it. Cool. All right, Robin, what are your picks? Yeah, mine are probably less nerdy. I don't know why. Maybe I <laughs> <laughs> spent an hour and a half talking about programming. So uh, my picks are all just things that interest me in my spare time. That's great. So my first one is comedian Amy Schumer. I think she's oh. hilarious, and she uh -huh. has a show called Inside Amy Schumer on Comedy Central. And just last week, she had a movie came out that called Trainwreck, which I saw last night, and it was hilarious. So I think it's like between her and Broad City, it's now like it's really uh, prime time or like maybe a golden age of female comedy. And uh, I think for a long time, people just saw women as unfunny, and she is totally bucking that trend. So she's one of my picks. Yeah, she's phenomenal. Yeah. My second pick is a horror movie that I recently watched called It Follows, which was, I really love genre movies and I guess horror movies often can be really predictable. And this one, even though it tells like a, I guess you could consider the bad guy or the antagonist kind of typical for a horror movie, it's very smart and characters don't act in stupid ways. And there's like a lot of things you can watch for in the background that make sense later. And, and, and the cinematography was amazing. So I just loved that movie. Um, and the third, my third pick is a book that I'm reading. I'm actually, I say reading. I don't know if you can say reading when it's an audio book, but I've been listening to this book while I'm at the gym. It's Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And it's, uh, it's a Western and I don't usually like Western kind of things, but this one is very well written and the narrator is fantastic and it's just extremely stark and desolate and depressing. And it's just beautiful to listen to, you know, the language, even though it's like, you know, kind of an awful time to be alive uh, <laughs> in these for these cowboys and the you know surviving off the land i just i think it's amazing and my music pick is uh an album that actually has been getting a lot of really good reviews it's called in color by jamie xx and it's an electronic album and it's i guess it's kind of 
I'm, I'm not great at describing music, but uh, it's it's kind of like, I guess, downbeat or um, for the most part. But uh, it's just like it's really solid, high quality electronic music that's amazing to program to. And I've been listening to it quite a bit while programming lately. So cool. I think cool. Do we have, have a favorite? Out. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Do you have a favorite track? Oh, the thing is, I actually use, I have a radio subscription and I just put on albums usually on shuffle so i often don't even know the names of okay. the tracks that i'm listening to so i just I, I i just like albums now i just put on the album on random and just like listen to it you know like nice i find like often when i get obsessed with tracks it's because the track has you know one of those catchy poppy hooks you know it's mm -hmm. like one of those you know things like that and like then i'm like i just find that I'll, I'll listen to that one track over and over instead of an album so i really appreciate when there's an album that i like because i could just listen to everything cool all right, very good. So I think we exhaustively went over how people can find you on on the internet. Probably yeah. Evil Trout, <laughs> Evil Trout on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> Evil Trout everywhere. Yes. Well, that's at least you know that is very very memorable. So that's Great. awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, Thanks for having me. Was uh, was great hearing hearing how that all went, and uh, getting some insights into. Um, discourse so thank you very much no problem like i said i had a great time so thank you very much for having me awesome all right um i'm henning glattergotz you can find me at at glattergotz on twitter and github it's just at glattergotz oh no it's h glattergotz <laughs> see you confused me you told me i should change it <laughs> yeah <I did. laughs> okay it's h glattergotz okay Cool. And I want to thank everybody for listening. You can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit us up on Twitter at DescriptivePod or join us in the Descriptive Slack chat. The link for that is also uh, on the website. Uh, Robin, thank you very much for your time. That was awesome. You're welcome.